Greetings in Jesus' name. Here I should say greetings to the house of prayer. As it's interesting as as the singing group that went to Germany, they always called them, they, they always have writing in the back of the church, uh, Beta House, or what was it? Prayer House is what they called the churches in Germany. Prayer House. It's a house of prayer. Isn't that what Jesus said? His house is supposed to be there in, the t- in, in Jerusalem. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. So we heard a lot of prayer this morning. That song was one of my favorite songs early on in my Christian life. I remember singing that song and receiving such comfort from those words. And those words, may I thy consolation share because of the grace of God that came during my times of troubles, seeking the Lord and finding grace. And that's what the Lord says. He says to come boldly to the throne of grace. We have a Lord Jesus who is at the right Father's right hand. He's interceding for us. We have those provisions abundant. I guess if, um, if we think of the love of God, and that's part of the love of God, that would be part of what would drain the ocean dry. So it's a blessing to get together and, but I think of prayer, I think prayer is not, prayer is not a duty. To some degree it is a discipline, to some degree it is a discipline. But prayer is almost spontaneous and natural when we're in trouble. When we're self-sufficient, when we are just floating, then prayer becomes a chore. And maybe that's our biggest problem with prayer. Because prayer is... Well, how many of us have a, have a hotline directly to the president's Oval Office. We can talk to the president whenever we feel the need. Whenever we see a problem somewhere or wherever we have a problem, we can call the Oval Office and get him on our case. We think, well, that would be a privilege. Oh, no, today i got to call the president. We have a hotline to the throne And it's time we understand what a privilege we have, myself included. Why don't we start with a word of prayer? Let's stand if you can. Let's just stand. Oh, our Father, we are grateful we can come before your throne. The throne of the universe, where those creatures are, those marvelous creatures, where there's 
a sea of glass before you where there's those colors around your throne where there's fire emanating and it's glass and it's a rainbow and all those things and the angels and there's a chorus there and we can come into your presence this morning. We are not there in heaven, Lord. We are here on earth, Lord. We are here on earth, Lord, where we are in in shooting distance of the enemy, Lord, where we, Lord, have have uh, our own flesh to deal with and where we have other people's flesh to deal with and where we have, Lord, uh, all the, the very natural things of life in a fallen world that we uh, that we deal with. We're here, and you're there, Lord, but you have asked us to come to you and ask for help. And, Lord, we believe, we trust you, we know there is help. We know, Lord, you have and will give us what we need to uh, to go through this world and also to be a witness for you. So, Lord, we thank you. We want to thank you this morning. We also want to ask you, Lord, to uh, minister to us this morning through your word as you think of going on with the service. Pray you bless each one of us here and meet each one of our needs. And Lord, inspire each one to love you, to serve you, and to come before you daily and hourly before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning I want to move forward with that series on the essay by John Copeland's. As he wrote on the opportunities and challenges that face us as a conservative people. The title of the last message was Maintaining Healthy Families in a Time of Social and Religious Chaos. And that message was part of the answer of the challenge number two, which is to, to maintain healthy families where children grow up into security of love and commitment. And I emphasize the word maintain because by and large, we have come from a people who have had a large or a, I don't want to say the healthy, I don't know if I can all say it's healthy, but a large measure of that structure that we have had, especially the traditional and uh, biblical family structure. And I emphasize that we are operating from a position of strength because of that. And the three points, three main points of strength that I mentioned was lifelong marriage, husband and wife roles, and children are welcome. And so the focus of that message was primarily the structure. And as I, after I was done with that message, I was wondering whether I emphasize structure too much. The structure, too much. Maybe, you know, after all, we are criticized as a people for being as straight as a gun barrel and just as empty. It's not a good analysis. And here I emphasized a straight gun barrel and did not address very much of the heart. I missed the heart, the source of life, our relationship with God. Now that was partly intentional because I knew I couldn't cover the whole thing. I knew that. 
I knew there would be another message needed. My intent was for us to be thankful what we have been given. That was my intent last message. But I still struggle. What do some of you think when I have a message with so much emphasis on structure and so little on heart? But I no longer feel bad, and I'm not going to apologize for it. They had another school shooting this past two weeks ago by a troubled young man. And there was an opinion article that I read by Steve Hilton. And I like to read excerpts of that. And you understand why I don't apologize for what I did last time. The title of the opinion article is Family Breakdown is the biggest issue America refuses to talk about. And so here are some excerpts. In the wake of the tragic recent shootings, deaths of 14 students and three adults at a Florida high school, we see a familiar ritual being played out, an angry debate about guns. What you never see in the, is the debate we really should be having about the social breakdown that has been going on in America and most developed countries for the past few decades. This breakdown has many forms. Our torn social fabric, the loss of sense of community and neighborliness, and falling trust in each other and in our shared institutions. But at the heart of it is the most important social change of all, the biggest issue that Americans refuse to talk about, family breakdown. It is now well established that Nicholas Cruz had a deeply troubled and unstable family background, a characteristic he has in common with many who have committed such atrocities. And uh, this wasn't in this article, but I, I seen someone who's done a study said 26 of the last 27 mass shooters did not grow up with their biological fathers. Going on here, it is important to remember that the majority of violent deaths in America, whether by guns or other means, are not caused by eco-psychopaths. They are caused by individuals who are troubled in more mundane ways and whose unstable family backgrounds are an instrumental factor in risky behavior like joining a gang. The deeper point is to understand that this is much bigger than just crime. More and more children in America are growing up in broken homes and in a culture of toxic stress and violence. Most of these children will never commit a crime, but many will end up living in poverty, suffering addiction or homelessness or debt or persistent unemployment or a combination of these things, trapping them in lives without any of the opportunities that others take for granted. The elephant in the room is marriage. The data shows clearly that on average, children who are raised in stable homes with both parents do better. Children from divorced parents or parents who never married in the first place do worse, whether that's in terms of lower levels of social mobility or higher levels of poverty. Of course, averages have exceptions to them. Many children from broken homes do well. I'm one of them. That's the author, not me. (laughs) 
but that shouldn't blind us to the overall picture. A few decades ago, over 90% of children were born to married parents. Today, it's less than half. Whatever, whichever way you look at it, you end up with the same place, the family. The single best thing we can do to increase opportunity, raise incomes, build a fairer society, fight crime and the drug addictions, improve health, reduce welfare, you name it, is to try to make sure that every child in America is raised in a stable, loving home. So there we have it. And should we be surprised, Psalms 11.3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now that's taking a little bit about a context, but basically it means when you no longer have the foundation, things crumble. God's plan works, and our culture has largely rejected the word of God and the blueprint in his word. Children, obey your parents. That's the blueprint of the word. Why? That it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth. That's a, a blueprint with a promise to it. And it has been rejected. And our land, we don't know how long we'll be living in our land because of that. The opposite Instead of the blueprint, this is what we see today. And this, by the way, is not my message. It's just simply a preamble to a last message. <laughs> in Second Timothy, those familiar verses in chapter 3, this is actually what we see today. This know also that in the last days, pearliest times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, that would be marriages, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So, that is the culture we live in, and that culture brings with it its consequences. So whatever we think of the conservative Anabaptist structure, whatever you think of, with their faults, their hang-ups, even their entrenched sins, there has, by and large, been a biblical structure there that we have benefited from. And so while I thought the last message may have focused too much on structure, and I felt a little bad afterwards, I don't anymore. We have been blessed by that structure. But this morning, I plan to challenge all of us beyond the structure. That's what my goal is this morning. Structure is good. There are many things that can go wrong and do go wrong in a family with children as far as raising them up in a nurture, uh, security of love and commitment. More is needed than a bare framework. And imagine with me a house 
that is what we would call a shell. That's a shell of a house. You used to build a house. You know what a shell is. You put the foundation in. You put the frame up. You put the walls in. You put the roof on because you got to protect it. But it's just bare studding. There's no, the walls aren't done. The windows aren't in. The doors aren't in. The plywood on the floor. Nothing in the ceiling. It's a shell. No electricity. No plumbing. No insulation. No heat. And there it sits. And your family is living in that house. Now, I have two questions for you. Is living in such a house better than not having any shelter? And we say yes. Is living in such a house ideal? And we say no. All agreed. I think we have anonymous agreement here, don't we? It's a blessing when brothers and sisters can have agreement. Okay. <laughs> Increasingly, many children in this society are growing up without even that structure. Without even a bare structure. And that was the main point of that opinion article. And it's one of the results of long-term rejection of God and his ways. Eventually, you will destroy the very structure. And that's what's happening. We wanted things our way, how we wanted it, where we wanted it, when we wanted it, and with whom we wanted it. And that is destructive. Benjamin Franklin said, nothing brings more pain than too much pleasure. And nothing brings more bondage than too much liberty. You know, you think of that narrow, that narrow, and I don't know if I'm going to talk about it later or not. You had the broad way and you had the narrow way. Gate. Sorry about that. You had the narrow gate and you had the broad gate. The broad gate narrows down. The narrow gate broadens up into life. And that is a principle that we cannot avoid. It's a principle of life. Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian, but he understood that principle, and he was in a biblical literate culture. So now we have pain and bondage, not even a long-term structure. And many families are only under temporary shelters, such as cardboard structures or tin shanties. Impoverished conditions... And there are whole shanty towns like that. But neither is it ideal to grow up in a shell of a house. Like, I just think it is last Friday. Now, we didn't have much snow here, but it is some places, but it was very windy and we had some rain. Maybe it snowed where you live, I don't know. But living, just imagine living in a shell of a house with no windows, no heat, no insulation, no doors, but you had a shell. You had walls but living in that house and have that wind blow through there well it was better than being outside but i don't think we would call that resting in the security of love and contentment or commitment 
So some of us actually grew up in houses like that, homes like that. There was a structure, but it was woefully inadequate and unfinished. And this happens in our circles more than we would like to admit. We have a structure. I think everyone here has a structure. And the question is, is our structure finished? So what are the inadequacies of having only a structure? It's time to look at ourselves and see if we are really living out and providing our children what God wants us to have. So the title this morning, and I don't know if I have a, I didn't know which one I want to use. Fleshing out a healthy family is one uh, title I had, or is maybe finishing the shell. <laughs> and I don't have an answer. I don't know which one. Maybe you can decide which one you want by the time it's over. Well, where shall we start? Turn to Psalms 127. Psalms 127, very familiar verses, verses 1 and 2 I will read this morning. Except the Lord built the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. I want to get two truths in these verses, just draw two truths out of these verses that are related to each other. The first truth is in verse 1, is the entire dependence on God for success. That's except the Lord built the house. If the Lord doesn't do it, we don't have success. And then number two is related to that, the vanity of all efforts, rising up early, sitting up late, without divine blessing. It's, it's, it's vanity. It's, it's vain. So the first point in maintaining a healthy family where children grow up in the security of love and commitment is to, number one, focus on the Lord, not your house. Focus on the Lord, not your house. That's right out of here. Right out of these verses. Who built the house? The Lord. Except the Lord build the house. Who gives success? The Lord. Okay. How does this work? Do I just sit aside and let the Lord work? And say, Lord, I built my house. He's going to take care of my house. He's going to take care of my marriage. He's going to train my children. He sets the schedule in our homes. He keeps the filthy things out of our homes from the world. How does this flesh out? (laughs) You know, the Lord's model prayer, we have this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Now, we live in a rich society. How many of you actually pray for daily bread? We sort of, we sort of uh, spiritualize it. You know, we need daily bread. We need grace. But really, for large swaths of people, that was actually a prayer. 
that they had for daily bread. We live in a world now where there are more people obese than there are malnourished. Now that, on the one side, <laughs> that's actually a, a good thing. On the other side, not so good. But we don't pray for daily bread. But if the Lord tells us to pray that way and we actually need food, then do we wait for him to fill our pantries and our freezers? No, he tells us if we don't work, you don't eat. So clearly we have a responsibility. God does not say we should not labor. He just does say we labor in vain if we don't have the divine blessing. That's what he says. And so the Lord's model prayer is as this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is done in heaven. Then comes first petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Now tell me, where is the focus of a true believer who prays this prayer? It's not on daily bread. It's in our Father, who art in heaven, about his holy name. It's in worship. It's not on food. God, he's majestic and he's holy. He has a kingdom. He has a will. He has a desire. And in context, it's a petition for our natural needs inside his plan and his will. We ask for daily bread. Along with petition is our obedience to walk according to his will because we have already have asked his will to be done on earth. So we labor. We plan, we cultivate, we take dominion as he told us to. That's obedience. But we don't steal, we don't manipulate, we don't involve ourselves in endeavors that are destructive or harmful to others, either directly or indirectly. Why not? We have to make a living, don't we? No, our God is first. We are absolutely committed to worship and obey him. We will let more lucrative opportunities alone to follow God. And as we follow God, in that context, we ask him to give us our daily bread. And that's the exact pattern for our families. Our focus is not on our families. Our focus is on our God. John Byers gave us a title at the men's seminar, uh, The Cross-Centered Marriage. Now, actually, I looked at the uh, titles that were given and put on the CDs later, and it says Christ-Centered Marriage. It's a title. But he gave it the title, A Cross-Centered Marriage. And we think, well, what's the difference? Well, the cross is definitely Christ-centered, but Christ-centered, well, in some ways... That has become overused so much to use its meaning. He actually gave, John actually gave an example of a um, California, I believe. It probably, those things happen in California. A $400,000 wedding that they had, someone had. 
And the bride, the stated goal was that the main purpose of this wedding is that this be a Christ-centered wedding. Was it Christ-centered? Well, let me ask this question. Was it cross-centered? It may be a better question to ask. And we'll look at the cross a little later. What does it mean? Was it denying yourself, take up your cross, and following the footsteps of Jesus? <laughs> this $400,000 wedding. I wasn't there, so I can't tell for sure. I just have my ideas. Maybe you do too. <laughs> so cross-centered carries a little different nuance than what Christ-centered might mean nowadays. There are two aspects of the cross of Jesus. One aspect is what the cross has done for us. And the, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. To redeem us back to God. And, and then... And to expose our need, I mean, the, the cross demonstrates the horribleness of our sin and what really had to be done to deal with it, and, and it, it brings something inside of us. I'd like to uh, read this one song that, mm, I don't know if it's my favorite anymore, but it was one of my many favorites and still is one of my favorite songs. And I like to read the words. Years I spend in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. By God's word at last my sin I learned, then I trembled at the law I spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Now I've given to Jesus everything, now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That is the one aspect of the cross. That aspect, what Jesus done, he finished it. It's complete. It, 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 it was the sacrifice that was needed for all the Old Testament saints that look forward. It's a sacrifice that's needed for everyone alive today. It is what is needed for our children and our grandchildren and whoever's not been born again. That is the sacrifice. It is finished. The cross of Jesus has fulfilled everything needed to the Father. And that is the aspect of the cross that we often hear, the gospel. It's what Jesus did for me. Then there is another aspect of the cross. It's what the cross does in me, in us. What does the cross do in us when we embrace the cross? And let me ask the question, what do you mean? Embrace the cross. <laughs> I believed, right? Well, turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. We'll get back to family in time, but this is, this is part of it. Focusing on God first. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. 
the other aspect of the cross. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Follow Jesus. Well, where did Jesus go? Well, look at the prior verse just before that, verse 22. Here's where Jesus went. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. So what does going the way of the cross mean for Jesus? What did embracing the cross mean for Jesus? It meant suffering. It meant rejection. It meant death. And it meant resurrection. And what does Jesus call us to do in no uncertain terms? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. In essence, lose your right to a $400,000 wedding. Lose your right to a happy life, an easy life. Lose your right in getting even or even for justice. Lose your right in having people treat you nicely and accept you. Lose your right to your flesh with its sensuality and gluttony or whatever form it takes. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if you don't hate father or mother and wife and children and land, you cannot be my disciple. That is part of denying yourself and taking up the cross to follow Jesus. This is the aspect of the cross that we often don't hear when it's popularly given. Following Jesus in this way will do things inside of us that nothing else will do. That suffering and denial that we experience will purify us. The hardships and deprivations will work deep things in our spirit that nothing else can. Talking about marriage, I think, I think John, John Byers did use this comment about marriage. He said, marriage was never meant to make you happy. <laughs> it was meant to make you holy. And it has, it can have that effect, let's say it that way. So, uh, embracing the cross will do in things inside of you. And then you will begin, as it works in you, will begin to find that the Lord meets your needs. And as you find out that the Lord meets your needs, as you, as you embrace the cross, as you follow Jesus, as you walk with him in prayer, and as you see that the Lord meets your needs, you're no longer as dependent on other people and what they do to you. You're not as dependent to that. I like to say you're not, but we are people. We, 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 are, we react to each other. We, we have uh, responses, and, and that's right. But we become less dependent on them. And we become... Sanctified. 
we come emotionally and practically holy. Broken people striving to walk in grace among other broken people. So embracing the cross is in fact to embrace the fact Embrace the, uh, embrace the fact that you can expect suffering. Embrace that. And don't be surprised when you are suffering for the righteousness sake. So let's go in this context, go through the prayer again. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day a healthy family where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. Put it in its right place. After the focus and the worship and the commitment and the yielding to God has been done, then you are ready for a family, a healthy family where children can grow up in that security. This is the path in which the Lord will build the house. This is the way we will not labor in vain. It's when we've experienced both the first aspects of the cross, where we have experienced forgiveness of sin, where we have repentance and we no longer have a guilty conscience and we have a clear heaven before us and we can go to the Father. And then we continue and follow Jesus in the way of the cross. So that's the outcome of the first point. Focus on your Lord, not your house. But we do get up and go to work after we pray for daily bread, don't we? And I would answer, how how do you work in a godly way? And I can just put a few put a few areas. Well, when you if you have a boss, you work for him. As you would to the Lord Jesus, even when he's not looking, you don't steal. You treat your customers with fairness and respect. And and we could go on and on in, in lots of ways. How do you work after you ask the Lord for daily bread and then you get up and work? You do it God's way. Well, that's how we do also in family. So now we have, we, uh, we uh, have a family where we have responsibilities too. And we get up after we pray. And we walk in a godly way. So, I would say, if, I would say if we have, if we have our Lord first, we're focusing on the Lord, as I explained, we got the furnace working in the house. There's heat in this house. <laughs> but there's still heat going out. There's still some, some things that need to be finished. And uh, this message is going to be woefully inadequate. And first of all, I'm not even an expert. After 25, 26 years, I'm still not an expert in this. So I'll let some of you finish it. Maybe John can sometime. But I have a few thoughts here. First one, and this is actually my main point, and then we'll just have some others. But the first one is parental love and harmony. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 12, has these verses and I'm not picking on you women, but I'm going to start with you because it was, well, I guess it was convenient. I don't know. <laughs> Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rupees? 
The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Well, what's her husband doing? Well, he's leading out. Her husband is known in the gates where he sitteth among the elders of the land. And what the result of such a home? Her children arise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. There we see a home that is blessed. Just a few excerpts from Proverbs 31. A healthy family developing right before our eyes. The focus here is on the wife's responsibility. It says a lot about a a godly wife and her sphere of influence that she can have in a home. Her impact. Her heart is turned towards her home. Her responsibilities and her children and her husband. Her main sphere of influence is her home. And even though she's doing things outside, her food is from afar and she buys a field and she does lots of things. Her main sphere is in her home. You know, today, women go out, they want to make an impact in this world and they go out of the home. And the impact we would have to say, is negative, not positive. They forsake God's plan to do it, and God's blessing is not on it. Career women outside the home forsaking their sphere. Now, a, 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 a wife, a mother, has a tremendous opportunity, that's a potential, let me say a potential, potential to do the opposite. I talked to someone recently that grew up in a troubled home from an Anabaptist home who did not have a virtuous mother. She did almost everything opposite of what a godly mother does. She did. She about destroyed that home. In fact, there's terror in that home. Her husband slept in the barn sometimes. Once when one of the children saw the husband gave a little peck of affection on the cheek of his wife and made the children almost throw up. It was so revulsive. It was the, 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 the spirit in that home and the terror and the, and the things was so bad that it, they couldn't handle that. That is an example of a shell of a house without any human comforts. Now that could happen could be a husband or a father as well doing the same thing. So what is a godly life? A godly wife. I thought I would read <laughs> out of this book, The Christian Family Living by John Copeland. And he has, has a chart here. By the world standard, you are an ideal woman if you, and he has 10 points, <laughs> So you might not want to write them all down. By God's standard, you are an ideal woman if, and it has ten points. So I thought I'd like to read that. I'm first going to read the world standards. We're talking about parental love and harmony. By the world standards, you are an ideal woman if you are pretty. Two, you have an attractive figure. Three, you dress in a way that accents your fem- feminine attractiveness. Four, you have a suntan. Five, you have charm 
in speech and conduct. Six, you develop an attractive smile, a quick laugh, and perpetual optimism. Seven, you acquire education and skills above changing diapers and doing laundry. Eight, you marry a man who is materially prosperous. Nine, you pursue a career of your own. Sorry, it's only nine, not ten. So that is the world's ideal. By God's standards, you are an ideal woman if you demonstrate, number one, you demonstrate a quiet and reserved manner. Two, you have a morally excellent character. Three, you demonstrate loyalty, support, and moral faithfulness to your husband. Four, you cover your hair with a veil and clothe your body simply and modestly. Five, you demonstrate good economics and industry in meeting the food and clothing needs of your family. Six, you avoid gossip and slander. Seven, you bear children and provide a home atmosphere suited to godly training. Eight, you show hospitality and kindness, especially to the poor. Nine, through life, you develop a wisdom from which you can instruct and counsel younger women. That's, of course, can you develop into an older woman. And, of course, we have those verses there in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So, what about the husbands? Ephesians chapter 5 again, verse 25. Husband, love your wives. How? Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 28. For so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man hath yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. And also First Peter 3, 7. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Husbands. We are to be as the Lord Jesus is to the church. We're to lead our wives that way. Tenderly and sacrificially and lovingly. We have expectations of our wives, don't we? It's okay to have expectations. But put your responsibilities that we have from God above our expectations of our wives. Suppose our wives is not meeting our expectation. That does not relieve us of our responsibility to love our wives sacrificially, tenderly, lead her, wash her, guide her, and meet her needs. That is irrespective of your wife's response to you. Your responsibility is to love her and care for her. 
We do have expectations, that is true. But those expectations, whether they're met or not, does not change how we are to treat them. So then I thought I'd read about the godly husband. And he has also nine points there. By the world standard, you're an ideal man if you are handsome. You are tall and muscular. I guess that would be secondary. And you have a suntan. I don't know what's this with this suntan thing, but. You drive a sporty or classy car. You have plenty of money. And you travel widely, or you can travel widely. You hold a position in business, preferably with a title. You give evidence of economic success, such as extra vehicles, recreational equipment, etc. You are well-educated, well-dressed, and have plenty of long-term investments. And you marry a pretty woman. That's the world's standards for an ideal man. By God's standards, you are an ideal man if you resist evil influences. You show understanding, respect, and moral faithfulness toward your wife. You show gentleness with children. You work hard and honestly to provide for the material needs of your family. You order your home with material simplicity focusing on heavenly investment. You give liberally to the poor, especially to widows. You lead your wife and children in the worship and praise of God. You provide teaching and training whereby all the family can grow spiritually. And you demonstrate an understanding of God's ways whereby you can be a source of counsel and encouragement to others. That is an ideal man by God's standards. If this shell of the house that we have, we have a shell, or you have a lifelong marriage, and you have husband and wife roles, and you have children that are welcome, and now we have added a furnace a focus on God, and now we have looked at the number of points. How are we coming along with the shell? Getting better. Just, just focusing on the husband and wife role in that home. You have an ideal wife by the Lord's standards, an ideal husband by the Lord's standards, and you have a, a huge amount of uh, security and love and commitment already in that home. We have a husband and wife who embrace the cross in their life. They daily deny themselves. They take up the cross and they follow the footsteps of Jesus. And that is really the key to a home that finishes a shell. The rest is mostly filling the blanks. You know the saying that more is caught than is taught? 
if your children catch the heart that's been described this morning, if they catch that, you don't have to do as much teaching. And that's opposite of me. I'm a teacher by nature, so I like to talk, and I like to teach, and I like to tell people how to do it. So I can delineate it out. I can go one, two, three, four. Okay, you need to do some of that. But what we really need is us to live it out. I, I this is my confession. If I would have made totting a secondary matter and focus on cotting, I believe our children would have had a better home than they did. And I'm still learning. So uh, just a few areas here. What are some of the blanks? I'm just going to very shortly, I'll let someone else finish this message. Have good discipline in the home. Children need structure. Little children like to push, well, not just little children, I don't think so. Children like to push boundaries and see if they move, see if they're spongy, see if they'll collapse. <laughs> and then they'll walk to the next boundary and see if they'll collapse. That, that's, children do that. And you don't know what I'm talking about. Well, if they push against the boundary and it stays, it's firm. It actually brings security, especially for younger children. They know. They know where the boundaries are. They know where they can live. That's a good thing. Set up standards and hold them graciously, carefully, gently. Have a decently ordered schedule. Develop memories and traditions as a family. Do fun things together. Laugh. Play games. Tell stories. I have found if we do annual things, our children look forward to that. But not only do they look forward to it, but they look back at the fun times they had, and especially if there's pictures involved, and you go back and you look, oh, yes, look at what we did back then, and there's memories, and there's, there's, there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of identity, there's a sense of family. When those things happen, you know, sometimes we think we can be so spiritual that we're actually sterile. That's not good. Properly done and properly balanced, building memories will help finish out the shell of a cozy home. And then, the last point, I'm just going to read a few verses that actually almost encapsulates everything. <laughs> well, not completely. But I'm going to read Deuteronomy, those familiar verses in chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. And you can hear the heart in here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. 
And these verses have almost all the components that I talked about this morning. God first. We love him. His word is in us. And in that context, we bring the next generation along. So the challenge number two to maintain healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. May God bless each one of you, each one of us, as we seek to fulfill his calling in our lives. God bless you.